0: Grateful for that hope. Grateful for those promises that we have in Jesus. would invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, we've been uh, working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we've reached this uh, great chapter. Just, how many, there's so many great chapters in Romans. This is certainly one of the Uh, wonderful, precious passages here. We began Romans 8 last week. We'll be in Romans 8, verses 12 to 17 this morning. And I hope you'll have your Bible open, or the Pew Bible that's there provided, uh, open with me to that passage. Uh, We all know we're in the thick of graduation season. We enjoyed uh, Catherine's party last night, getting ready for Wes's this afternoon. And uh, these days are, are both exciting and scary and, and not just for the students, for the parents, too. Uh, you know that? Um, it, it's exciting and scary for all the same reasons. You know, figuring out the future, the, the, the job, or the f- further schooling, career choices, relationships. And behind all the questions, uh, where am I going and what am I doing, is maybe even the bigger question, who am I? Uh, finding your identity is a big deal and not just for graduates. They're, they're, and there are many voices out there, that, of course, that, that are telling you how you can figure out who you are. Some encourage you to accept yourself just as you are. You, you can't change your core identity, your authentic self, so you might as well embrace it and celebrate it. But what if you don't like who you are? Others can say that, Hey, you can be anything you want to be. Take on a new identity. Decide for yourself who you are. You're not limited by your parents or your past or even your anatomy. You've got endless options. But don't endless options and self-definition just create more pressure? And what if you can't reach what you think you really want? There's a better way in the Bible to deal with identity issues. It's not about uh, settling who you are for now, uh, settling for who you are now. That is, uh, it says, the Bible says, that change for the better is not only possible, it is necessary. Redemption is found in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's not just about proving uh, yourself worthy of acceptance through your accomplishments. Justification comes through faith, depending, relying on Christ. It's not about self-improvement through health regimens, style makeovers, or productivity apps. Sanctification, transformation is through the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, your identity is not about choosing whoever you want to be. It's about receiving a new identity in Christ, as a gift from God, and then living into that new identity by grace as He enables you. That's what we're seeing even already in Romans chapter 8. We're, we're going to see even more of this new, new God-given identity in verses 12 to 17, but I need to start reading back in verse 1, where we were last week, all right? So I'll begin reading Romans 8 from verse 1. Our passage will be 12 to 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be also glorified with Him. This is God's Word. Our message this morning summed up this way. New life in the Spirit gives us a new identity as debtors, sons, and heirs. And you can see those three words right here from the text. Those will be the three parts of our sermon this morning. Maybe uh, you've not seen the outline. There's an outline on the back of the worship folder that might help you follow along as we work our way through these six verses, two verses on each point. And here's part one. Our, this is part of our new identity. New life in the Spirit leads to a new identity as debtors. Owing nothing to the flesh, we must put sin to death by The Spirit. Now, focusing here again on verses 12 and 13, but notice the connection to what came before. 12 starts, so then, which follows the if of verse 11. So, verse 11 again if the Spirit of Him, God the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He, God the Father, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now, there's sort of a then in the middle. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. But 12 and then 13, if, that's, if, if verse 11 is what God is doing in us, here's another conclusion, but it's not about who we now are and what we must now do in that new identity. So 12 and 13... This is all based on God's presence and God's power in your life. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, careful attention. Paul doesn't say, we're not debtors anymore. He, he, he could have said, there is therefore now no obligation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, it's not what he says. We, he says, we are debtors, but but not according to the flesh, to, li- to live according to the flesh. The implied there is, of course, there's still an authority to whom we must submit. There is still a leader that we must follow, but it is not our flesh. We don't have to live that way anymore. And there are moments, I'm sure, when, when you are fighting sin, fighting temptation, like Paul described back in chapter 7, Oh, what I, what I don't want to do, I, that's, that's what I keep on doing. And it, and it feels like it's inevitable. It feels like you have to. You feel like, uh, you know, I, I'm going to hate myself later, but I guess this is just who I am. Paul says, no, no. If you are in Christ, things have changed. You can tell sin I don't owe you anything anymore. You're you're not the boss of me. That's that's your attitude towards sin. The only obligation you now have is to live for God by His Spirit. That is what you must do. Now, some uh, will read this. Uh, you can read it in various you know commentaries. Some think, well, Paul doesn't explicitly say we are debtors to God because that's just you know too too negative. I mean, who who wants to be a debtor? Is that something that we're going to celebrate today? Our new identity. We're debtors. Well, I, I, I get that. No, uh, you know, Think about, though, the, the, the way we use the expression uh, when we say that we are forever indebted to someone. You know, n- nobody's, uh, when, when you say that, when you hear somebody say that, we, we don't mean, oh, what an awful position to be in. I'm a, I'm a debt slave to this person. No, you're, what you're saying is, they, they have done so much for me. I could never possibly repay them. You, you're, you see that you stand in grace. That's what you're saying when you, when you say that you're forever indebted to someone. Uh, some of you may know the name Robert Murray McShane. He was a Scottish pastor some 200 years ago. And in 1837, he wrote a hymn that he called, I am a debtor. And it's along him. Here's just two verses. Here's verse one. He said, When I stand before the throne, thinking when he gets to the end of his life in heaven, when I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see thee, God, as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. But then he turns it back to to this life. He says, Chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side, by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show, now in my life, by my love, how much I owe. That's an identity as a debtor that brings joy, that brings gratitude something that you're thankful for, being a debtor that makes a difference in your life. Now, verse 13 gives further reason, further motivation to live as debtors to God alone. It's it's not written uh, in perfect parallel form as if uh, Paul would have said in verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if you live according to the Spirit, you will live. He could have said that also a little bit redundant, but that's, I, I think that's implied, but what Paul actually says is what living according to the Spirit actually involves in terms of our action, our involvement. By the Spirit, you must put to death the deeds of the body. Why? Not only because of the proper authority of God, but for the practical consequences for you. This is a matter of life and death. There's all the difference in the world in that. If I can quote another uh, dead person, uh, the English Puritan pastor, John Owen, so this is back to the 1600s, wrote at length on, on this topic uh, what was called in older English versions the mortification of sin, putting sin to death. And he summarized it in a memorable way. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That, I mean, there's a, there's a tweet for you. Be killing sin or sin will be will be killing you. That's, that's what this is talking about. Colossians 3, 5 through 10, Paul puts it this way. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Do you hear this? Based on a new identity that you have in Christ, you put sin to death. You just put it away. And you say, well, okay, but how do I do that? That's a fair question. It's a good question. Paul does not give us a step-by-step process, uh, we're simply, I think simply what he's saying is, we're called to be ruthless with our sin. Don't, don't give your sin a short leash. You know, well, you can have this much room, but then I'll, you know, I'm going to st- say, I'll stop here. Don't, don't give your sin a curfew. You're alright up until this point, and then you know, you're going to have to bring it home. No, kill it. That's what he's saying. Jesus said, we remember this, right, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut them off. Better to, paraphrasing, better to limp into heaven than to run to hell. Now, many have said, with only a bit of humor, that if we took those words literally, we'd all be sitting here blind and maimed. Yes, it is something of hyperbole, but Jesus' point is dead serious and is not something that gives us wiggle room. You've got to be ruthless with our sin. If you're tempted by a certain website or a particular TV channel, block it. Unsubscribe, whatever. If you're tempted by a certain store or a certain uh, tavern, whatever, reroute your commute. Don't be so tied to a particular friendship or a particular activity, a particular form of entertainment, whatever. Don't be so tied into something that's leading you into temptation, leading you into sinful, sinful behavior that you are unwilling To cut it off, to squash it like a bug. Better to carry a flip phone into heaven than a smartphone into hell if that is the source of your sin problem. You don't owe it anything. It's certainly not worth your life. What do you need to squash? What do you need to stomp? What do you need to choke? What do you need to pull out by the roots? We're called to be ruthless with our sin. This is important. In the power of God. That phrase in in verse 13 is so important. If by the Spirit you put to death, you put sin to death, you you must do it, but you can't defeat it on your own. You You can't, or think of it this way, you can't defeat the flesh in the power of the flesh. All the desires that we have, you can't do that in your own strength. That, that, that our weakness is precisely the problem. We need the life of the Spirit in us to give us, yes, the power then to engage in the battle and, by God's grace, find a measure of victory. That's the whole point at the uh, end of chapter 7. By ourselves, we're, we're powerless. But you don't have to be there anymore, Paul says. That's, that's not who you are. That's not where you are. That's not who you are now. So, to to read just verse 11 again. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's the premise. That's the foundational reality. And because God will give life to your mortal body through the spirit, then you can, you must put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit. Check your ID. We, we're debtors, forever indebted to God. And that defines and directs who, not just who we are, but where, where we're going, what we're doing. We're debtors and we are, this is part two, we're sons. Not ruling out the daughters among us here this morning. We'll I'll comment on that in a minute, but that's the word the text uses here in uh, verses 14-14. And 15, sons, part two. Serving no longer in fear, we now know God to be our loving Father. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Let's just take the first part of that for the moment. What what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Some of us would would be glad to have this work, something like turn-by-turn directions, you know, if you've got the Spirit, then, you know, in a thousand feet, turn left. We, we would love to, have, so, so that we, and we think, if God would just give us that, then we, then we would always be in the right place at the right time, and things would just work. We, we, we tend to think that's how, that's, that's not really uh, what's going on here, although you, you can see um, in Acts 16, some of us are in that, have been in that chapter in the, in the Sunday school class, um, downstairs. You can see there was at least one time when the Holy Spirit actually guided the direction and destination geographically of Paul's missionary journey. Uh, okay, but that's not what this is talking about. As always, we need to pay attention to the context. What's being talked about? Wh- what are, what's the point of discussion here? And in the first part of the chapter, of course, Paul describes believers as those who have set their minds on the Spirit so that they walk according to the Spirit, Live according to the Spirit; these are the ones who fulfill the righteous requirements of God's law. So the concern is here: uh, behaving uh, properly, morally, righteously, doing what is right rather than what is wrong. Not you know making a, a left turn so much as choosing to do what is right. These are the ones who fulfill the righteous requirements of God's law. And then there's the verse right before. Uh, verse 13, putting sin to death by the Spirit. That's what he means uh, to be led by the Spirit. And the only other place Paul talks about being led by the Spirit in that specific phrase is Galatians 5.18, the passage on the fruit of the Spirit. We read that at length last week, so I won't go back there again this week, but both times, Romans 8, Galatians 5, Paul's talking about being led by the Spirit. It's about living a godly life. No, it shouldn't be a surprise, right? That the Holy Spirit in us, he, He's in us to make us holy, to to lead us in a holy life. Now, you could take this verse, Romans eight fourteen. You could read this negatively. Well, if you're not led by the Spirit, then you are not sons of God. And we looked at those ifs in verses nine through eleven last week. We said those all those ifs. If you, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, if is. Uh, not to create doubt in the believer, it's to, to prevent any kind of presumption on the part of someone who might be sitting in church but not truly following Christ. It's like, that, don't just assume that, that you're on board. If you're not being led by the Spirit, the Spirit is not in you. But at the same time, as we said last week, those, those ifs are there to create confidence in the believer, Verse 11, if the Spirit is in you, then God will indeed give life to you through Him. And that's the thrust here. And it becomes yet another encouragement to follow the Spirit. In other words, why should you set your mind on the Spirit? Why should you be ruthless with your sin? Because, verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. When you are walking with God, you have all the more reassurance of your relationship with Him. With God. Now, it's it's true, Um, for example, this is true in your family, it's true in mine. Jack and Andrew are not my sons because they obey me as their father, and I don't love them only when they obey me. But But there is an appreciable difference, uh, shall we say, in the, the experience of our family when there is disobedience or disrespect or disregard. And in that case, in that situation, um, they are not living within our relationship properly and we are not enjoying our relationship fully. As a human father, it's also true that I might be too demanding, might be self-centered or short-tempered, but God, as our father, does not make improper demands of us. His commands are always for our good and just as there are, is harmony and peace and love and joy in our house when they're, when they're the, the everyone is working in their proper relationship to one another, healthy fam, family dynamics, so it is when we obey God our heavenly Father. when we obey him we're, when we're walking with him in closeness of fellowship there's, there's joy there's life there's peace it doesn't it's not that obeying him makes you a son or daughter it's about walking with him gives you that full experience and satisfaction and reassurance of your sonship that you are a child so don't you don't you want that don't you want to know God in such a way? Don't you want to walk with God in such a way? Not that you're feeling like, okay, this is what he says I have to do, so I'm going to go. I guess I, gotta, I just got to go out and do it. And, you know, we've all been uh, teenagers, so I'm not really talking about my, my boys right now, but we've all been there where, okay, got to go do it. Uh, the attitude. We've been there. We've all been there. That's not how we enjoy God is our Father. It's not how we enjoy our family relationship, and you can see if, if we if we're living into that in the right way, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You're you're as you're walking with Him and you're uh, reaffirming, reassured in that identity as belonging to Him. You can, you can just see as you keep reading that, is the, that this verse 14 is meant to be reassuring to us, meant to be encouraging. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, maybe you remember, um, as Paul did describe believers as slaves back in chapter 6, emphasizing God's absolute authority, the necessity of our obedience. But this is so important, what he's saying right here. Living by the Spirit does not bring a sense of slavery. And you, you may like, uh, maybe like, like a, a, a child in your family or when you were a child in your own family and you're choosing to live in the spirit of slavery. I've got to do this. It's making me do this. Now I've got to go to the a Spirit of Slavery. But Paul says that that's, that's not how you were brought into the family. You were not given a, a sense of slavery. There's, there should be no begrudging submission on our part to God. When, when we obey God simply to avoid punishment, uh, operating out of fear, I mean, God, understand, folks, or believe this again God does not hold you in chains, He holds you in His arms, He's your Father. A loving father. The law by itself was oppressive. The spirit brings joy in obedience. He is a spirit of adoption, it says. And again, the, the word here in the Greek is literally a, a sonship. And that, that's the new uh, place that you're at. And, and from deep within us now, by the spirit, comes this instinctive cry for our father. Abba, father. That's Abba, the Aramaic word uh, father, father well, that's our English word, but there underneath is the Greek word for father. Uh, Aramaic and Greek words together, using that partly because Jesus prayed this way, uh, referenced Abba, Father, in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark records that for us. But it, Abba was specifically how a Jewish child would have spoken to his or her own father. And whether the cry here is, is uh, an exclamation of delight in the Father or calling to him for help. You know that all that together. We, we know that having, be, being able to call him father is a privilege and it is a comfort. There is a tenderness and a warmth and a security in a good father. And when we have that connection. This is about your, your, your life. And even, even when we think about the battle that we have with sin putting sin to death, seeking to follow the Spirit, trying to do what's right. All of that, you've got to see all of that in the context of being His child. That's what we're being called to do. This is about your identity as His Son, just as near and dear to the heart of God as His one and only beloved Son. We can call God our Father, Just like Jesus did. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father. This is why theologian J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, maybe some of you read it, he says this Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Let that sink in a little bit. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all folks if you if you if you think this is just a A club for people who who have a you know a perennially guilty conscience, and we're all just trying to be you know work on being better this week. And now you you y'all go out there and try to you know do be good little boys and girls. You missed it. I'm then, then I've sent you out in a spirit of slavery. I hope hope you don't make God angry this week. Try to do better. Spirit of slavery. Spirit of fear. if we go today like yes yes i i am his child god i know what i know you know sometimes when you say do this don't do that i'm like oh that's not how that's not how you look on me you don't look uh, you don't look on me as a just somebody to get the, the work done you come to me as a father and, and God, I want to love you and serve you and obey you and enjoy you as your child. Don't, don't we want to live like that? Don't we? Check your ID. You are sons and daughters of God. He is your Abba Father. And, and there's more, more to say about this adoption and we're going to get that in our final point. This is part three, heirs. This is another part of your identity. Receiving all that is His, we must go through suffering to glory with Christ. Verses 16 and 17, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, I know that suffering part has your attention. Uh, but let's work our way there. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And many people read this and like, is that some kind of special sense that I have? A, a, a gut instinct that that I'm children of God because the Spirit's within me. I, I don't know if I can tell you exactly what that feels like, or if it is indeed a feeling. I, I don't. I don't know a sense, an intuition. It might be simply just him repeating what he's been saying all through this passage, that the Spirit's presence in us reassures us of our relationship with God. And practically, you see that in a life that's going, that's walking with the Spirit. Being a child of God naturally means, then, that you are an heir. Another aspect of our identity, another part of our relationship. And this is still true today. Unless you were to write me into your will... I do not stand to inherit anything from you. I thought that would be funnier, but that's all right. Uh, (laughs) You you could write me into your will and I would inherit from you. But if you're not a child of God, uh, through faith in Christ, as evidenced by the Spirit in you, leading you into godly behavior, then you are not an heir. If you are a child of God, then you are an heir of God. Now, before we get into what you and I stand to inherit as believers, we need to appreciate the connection with adoption that was already mentioned earlier in the passage. Today, most adoptions involve uh, usually a a couple um, taking an infant or a young child into their home, perhaps because they are unable to have a child on their own, or perhaps simply out of a, a desire, a compassion, to give a better home to a child without parents. Back in the first century, though, when the, when the New Testament was being written, adoption in the Roman culture was much more focused on the inheritance specifically. So when a wealthy family uh, was looking to adopt, it was not an act of compassion, um, taking in a child. Now, I should sidebar, Christians in this age were often taking in abandoned babies into their home. I mean, the, early, the earliest kind of pro-life movement. But that, this is different. This is not what is being talked about here. In, in Roman culture, again, a wealthy family, not looking at, in, as an act of compassion in any way, they were concerned. Now, they, they were childless. Um, and the, but they were concerned with the future of their estate or the future of their name, the future of their holdings. So they would adopt, then, a young adult Man to take their family name and their family fortune. They were very conscious then in this adoption of making this person their heir. So imagine then going from being someone that presumably did not grow up with their own name or fortune and then suddenly going. Having, having no family, no future, and then, in, in, in one sense, in a moment, being legally recognized within this new relationship, having a new name, a new identity, a new future, because you were adopted into this family. Folks, before Christ, that, that was all of us. We had, we had nothing to our names. Or we could say, in another sense, we were nameless. And homeless and hopeless. Every single one of us apart from Christ. And then suddenly, through Him, we're all written in to the will. We all stand in line to receive all that is His. And all that is His will one day be ours. That's, in effect, God stands with us and says, one day, son, daughter, this will all be yours. And you say, well, okay, I'm following the analogy, I think, but if God you know, never dies, when, when do we inherit and what do we get? Well, if I could go back to that Galatians 5 passage one more time, Paul says that those who, in the negative, he says those who do not walk by the Spirit, those who are not led by the Spirit, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Earlier in Romans chapter 4, uh, Romans 4.13, for the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. This is the inheritance, folks. The whole world, the kingdom of God. That's the picture we have at the end of the Bible, right? A, a new Jerusalem in a whole new creation and receiving with Christ the kingdom. Christ our King, to reign with Him in glory. Glory, which is at the end of our passage here, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Don't, don't hear suffering and miss the glory that follows. That's important. We're, we'll come back to that next week because that really leads us into the next passage, next Sunday's sermon. But just when, you want, just when you want Paul to say, uh, hey, tell us more about what we're going to get. You know, tell, tell us more about what's on the list of all the things that we're going to inherit. He says, well, provided, uh, you know, just remember, you're going have to suffer with him. Uh, and next week's sermon. But let me say this for now. Let me say this for now, and we'll, we'll bring this to a close. This suffering, I hope you know by now, walking through this book together, this suffering is not about paying your dues or earning privileges. It's, it's about remaining faithful through the hard times, through the conflict, which is the only way to get to the final victory, the final celebration. Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, Christ, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. This is the call to endure Endure through the sufferings, the trials, the pains, the tribulations of this life. If we endure, we will also reign with him. I've heard this from another preacher that I I can't remember. Uh, This this little way of thinking about enduring suffering as an heir. Imagine you are on your way to the, the lawyer's office where he will read... The will that you know will give you, let's say, a hundred million dollars. You're on your drive over there, and let's say you get a flat tire. How upset are you? I mean, now, if you said if you're not here, you don't get it. That that would be pretty upsetting. But if you're if you're getting you're getting a like. Buy buy new tires, buy a new car, a flat tire, let's buy a new car. Like, if if you're now you're on foot, you're walking and somebody holds you up, takes your wallet, and the twenty-five dollars you had in that wallet. How are you devastated? You stand in line to receive a hundred million dollars. Take the cash. Take the wallet. Knowing, here's the thing, knowing that you are an heir, knowing all that you stand to inherit, changes your perspective on every trial, on every loss. It should, if you know who you are. Check your ID. If you knew that you were to inherit everything, what would you be able to endure? If you knew that you were to inherit everything, what would you be able to endure? If you knew that you had nothing to lose and everything to gain, what would you be willing to risk? Hebrews 12, and with this I close. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When you know that you are, like Jesus now, a son, when you know that you have been adopted and, and, and we'll stand forever indebted to your heavenly Father, to His Son, our Savior, to the Holy Spirit that has guided you through dangers, toils, and snares. When you know that you are a son or daughter and an heir. Brothers and sisters, we should be able to, to go through anything with Him. Let's pray. Oh, God, we did not deserve to be brought into your family. Thank you for the privilege of being able to say. Father? Abba? You know how we're hurting. You know how we're struggling. You know how weak we are, how foolish we are in our childhood. But would you walk with us through These days, would you, by your spirit, help us to walk with you all the way, all the way to your glorious kingdom? We pray in Jesus' name.